I can hear you loud and clear, darling. <coughs> okay, let's go. So daytime look is very casual, just like jeans, uh, t-shirt, hoodie. If I'm going somewhere nice, I'll wear my suit. Um, and then getting changed into the characters is a totally different look. As I said, I have two characters. Um, Sheila's very easy. She's a pink polyester trouser suit with dear Monty flats and a handbag. Nice and easy. Cookie is way more complicated. You've got to block the eyebrows out. You've got to contour, corsets, all of that stuff. Cookie's slightly, well, they're both glamorous, but Cookie is more glamorous and edgy than Sheila. And, uh, and Cookie wears lace front wigs as well, which means there's lots of glue with Cookie, loads of glue and tape and pulling and tucking. Sheila's easy. Welcome to Anything But Silent, the podcast from the British Library, celebrating the people, projects, and passions of libraries all around the world. I'm your host, Cleo Laskarin, and in this episode, we'll be traveling to New York for a milestone 50th anniversary and we'll also be dipping into the British Library's incredible oral history collection to hear stories of lust and identity in wartime Britain. But first, in this episode all about love and liberation, I want to introduce a performer and glittered star of the stage, Richard Rhodes. I first fell in love with drag in the 90s. I was living in New York at the time. Before I left, I knew of uh, obviously Lily Savage, um, but didn't really pay that much attention. It wasn't until I was in New York in the club scene in the East Village that I got to know queens such as Girlina, Candice Kane, Head of Letters, RuPaul, Lady Bunny. Um, and from then, I was just bitten by the bug, really. I was fascinated by this art form and wanted to have a look more at it and eventually became a part of it. I grew up in a very small village. Um, I knew I was gay from a young age, but, you know, this was in the late 70s, early 80s, so there was nothing, you know, just gay wasn't around. And and I often wonder what it would have been like if someone had been at my school that I could identify with. And maybe then I wouldn't think I was or feel I was so alone. So it was that kind of stuff that drew me to it as well. And I just, you know, I've always been one for let's push those boundaries, let's push those limits and educate people. Richard, also known as Cookie Monstar and Sheila Simmons, is one of London's most celebrated drag artists. His work has taken him all around the world, from performances at the legendary Wigstock Festival in New York's East Village to hosting his own cable TV series. Basically, Richard has done it all. But away from the raucous club crowds and the world of celebrity, he's recently become involved in a project that has taken him to a totally different audience, and one that's made him think about his own youth. It's just you know, showing that we're just regular people. Well, we're not regular, but you know what I mean? <laughs> Special. Um, the whole point of it is we're showing the kids that, you know, it's okay to be different. You can dress like this, you can be like this. Not everybody has two mums, not everybody has two dads, not everybody is the same color, but it's about embracing who you are. Today, Richard has found himself treading the boards of a brand new stage, the library, in towns and schools across the UK. Hi everyone, how are we doing? Here, how are you? My name is Tom Cannon and I'm the founder and organizer of Drag Queen Storytime. I started Drag Queen Storytime almost three years ago now. It's because I saw a tweet, uh, which sounds like a ridiculous way to start 
a charity. But there's a similar project in the United States, which is run by Michelle T and Radar Productions. I saw it advertised on Twitter and I was just like, that's an amazing idea. Why doesn't it exist in the UK? To my surprise, they responded to my tweet saying, why don't you make it? So I did. <laughs> and now here we are almost three years later. Tom Canham is the UK founder of Drag Queen Storytime, a project that is just what it sounds like. Drag queens reading stories to children in libraries, schools and bookstores. I knew I was gay at around the age of 11. I didn't see myself represented in television. I didn't see myself represented in any of the books I read. And I'd already had it ingrained in me, essentially, that the word gay meant negative. It was used in the playground to bully kids. It was used to say that things were bad. So I believe that it's important to have a kind of message out there which counters that and suggests a more positive, accepting uh, way of looking at what is essentially the lived experience of some of the most vulnerable people in the UK. Girls can't be firefighters, Mia says. But look, there's a lady driving the fire engine. So my first story time was at a primary school in Soho. And I remember it was just around the time when a big story had broken in the press and everyone's very anti-drag queen story time and people were finding it disgusting and all that kind of stuff. And I was really, really quite worried about doing it. I didn't know if I should be associated with that, you know, all, all those kinds of questions were coming around my mind. And I was just like, God, am I qualified enough to do this? You know, what is it all about? And I remember going to the school and I got talking to the head teacher and I said, I said, I'm so stressed. I said, my main issue is if they ask the question, am I a boy or a girl? What do I say to them? I don't want to lie to them. And um, he said, oh, God, just say whatever you want. They, they won't really bother. And, um, and they didn't. They didn't ask at all. They just referred to me as the lady with the lovely hair. As Richard and Tom have described, the message of Drag Queen Storytime is one of acceptance, getting to know and understand all different kinds of people, and that you can find role models in all areas of life. But this doesn't mean they haven't ruffled a few feather boas along the way. There have been occasions where the safety surrounding the venues or the performance themselves may have been in question. It tends to align quite well with when there is some kind of negative reaction in uh, national newspapers or particular interest groups. Like when we were front page, obviously led to something like 150 complaints nationally. Um, and it was during that period that I was receiving at least one death threat a day being sent directly to Drag Queen Storytime's email. But we essentially decided that the fact that these voices were like shouting what they were shouting and saying what they were saying and kind of highlighted why it was necessary for us to be doing what we were doing. And I found with a lot of people, it's not so much homophobia or any kind of bigotry consciously present. It's more a lack of understanding of the issues involved. So once you actually begin to introduce it to them, if you can introduce it to them in a positive way, they will react positively to it. And then they will take that with them for the rest of their lives and hopefully pass that on to the next people they meet. And eventually we won't be necessary. Despite backlash and reactions from certain groups, Libraries around the UK are more keen than ever to wave the flag and host events with drag queens and kings. One of the most recent took place in the Northwest. I'm Anne Burns. I work for Bolton Library and Museum Services. I'm a Collections Access Officer. I've been here for 15 years. Everything is happening today. We've got loads going on in the building today. It's a really, really great day. And um, in the Children's Library this afternoon, we've got drag kings. My name is Artemis Bear. 
and my drag name is Kurt Sylvain. My pronouns out of drag are they, and my pronouns in drag are he. Above the town lived a queen, the young crown prince and the crown kitty. We are having a lovely, wholesome afternoon where we are reading beautiful, inclusive stories to kids of all ages, but particularly the little ones who maybe haven't ever seen any representation of LGBTQ plus people. And so we're just reading some stories that maybe have characters where there's two mums or two dads or where people just feel a bit different and a bit excluded and stories about how it's okay to be different. We started Pride in Bolton a few years ago and that's going really well. And I just think the more people are exposed to lots of different experiences and lots of different things, the more accommodating they will be. And the librarian's enthusiasm was infectious for the event. And it was clear that the attendees in Bolton were of the same spirit. The children's library was brimming with excited kids and parents. I think that kids need to be exposed to the entire rainbow. We've got friends who are trans. We've got um, one of my very close friends, little girl, was born male. And I want them to know that it's normal and it's okay to wear nail varnish and have long hair and it really doesn't matter. I just want my daughter to understand that everybody is different and you shouldn't shun people because of that. Uh, she's nearly nine now, so she knows that I'm bisexual. I'm not sure she knows what that means, but I've explained to her that, you know, it's okay for boys to love boys and it's okay for girls to love girls. If you've seen it, you're not scared of it. Does anyone know which film I'm from? Today there was a child who just thought I was Princess Elsa and didn't think that having a blue glittery moustache and beard was at all in any way problematic for that. It was just, that was fine. I think it's about time that events like this aren't constrained to the big cities, to Manchester, Birmingham, London. I'd like to think that Bolton's a bit of a trailblazer, that we're doing something a bit different, that we're out there. We love everybody. The two princes are known as King and King, and everyone lives happily ever after. <laughs> I think it's amazing that drag queens are in libraries reading to kids. I think it's amazing that drag queens are everywhere where they are. It's beautiful to watch it now being celebrated as an art form and not something that's going to be swept under the carpet. You know, when I started, it was still very underground. It wasn't that cool to be a drag queen. Um, so, you know, we had a lot of paving the way to do and it's been lovely to be a part of that and now I can step back and look at those doors that we opened, look at those barriers that we broke down and see these new queens coming up and having this freedom you know to express themselves and express themselves openly and for people to be okay about it and I just think that's a wonderful thing. I do hope it makes a difference. Uh, there are various organisations currently in the process of doing the research behind that but obviously it's only what like 50 years or so that we were even made legal. So the research sadly doesn't exist. Um, so to be a part of that change going forward is a privilege. Thanks to Tom Canham, Richard Rhodes, and the librarians, parents, and performers we heard at Bolton Central Library. I think it's so cool that libraries are offering this opportunity for children and families to see gender-diverse adults in all their fabulousness. If you'd like to read more about Drag Queen Storytime or attend one of their events, head to dragqueenstorytime.com. 
You're listening to Anything But Silent from the British Library. And throughout June and July, the library is attending Pride events in York, Leeds, and London. And exploring our theme of love and liberation got me thinking about other histories of LGBTQ plus people as told through the library. For this, I decided to look at the British Library Sound Archive's collection of oral histories, an amazing and ever-expanding archive of audio and video interviews covering subjects relating to British life, work, and culture. This collection is vital, as in these interviews, people recount their personal experiences, many of which are not held in official records and cannot be heard in any other way. So I wanted to pick out a couple of interviews that described gay and lesbian experiences through World War II. In the following clips, you'll hear the voice of Mary Wilkins, whose interview is one of the earliest lesbian experiences recorded in the collection. She was a pacifist, born in England in 1907, who worked as an ambulance driver during World War II. And John Alcock, a gay man who found himself navigating his sexuality while serving in the British Army. I think one of the most surprising things that happened to me when I was in the army, when I was first beginning to sort of blossom out in many directions, was I found myself in the West End of London on my first leave. The place to go in those days, of course, were very thin on the ground, but there was a shake-up bar of the Regent's Palace Hotel was one of them. And uh, I was in the shake-up bar, which was only men, men only were allowed in the bar. And I became aware of the amount of officers that were standing around including two officers from my own battalion. And uh, I was aware then that all the officers there were homosexuals. And that gave me a tremendous lift. And on the following Monday, when I got back to the uh, battalion and I was marching across the square, one of these young officers was coming towards me and we saluted each other. And as he passed me, he said, you have a nice weekend, dear. Keep it to yourself. And, uh, you know, that sort of gave me strength. Not that I needed uh, any kind of moral boost, but it was very gratifying to uh, realise that officers were also inclined to be my way as uh, anyone else was. Mm. That period of time was coming up to the end of the war. And I decided that I'd had enough anyway. So I went to the uh, medical officer and I came out on medical grounds. On homosexual grounds is the more truth. I told him that I was homosexual. And of course, if you admitted to being homosexual in those days, you were automatically released from the army. And we called it taking the veil. I remember very much on the day that I was discharged from the army, I was standing on the station at uh, Netley, uh, which was the station adjacent to the hospital, and uh, there was an Air Force officer looking at me, a squadron leader, and he came across to me, had a pair of leather gloves, and he saluted me. And he says, well, soldier, it's all over. Are you pleased about that? And I told him that I was, you know. And he got in the train with me and sat with me and we went to the Russell Square Hotel, the Imperial Hotel in Russell Square. And we spent a couple of days there together, which was very nice. And we watched the Victory Parade, yes, I remember that. We watched the Victory Parade together. 
Mary Wilkins, tape one, side one. Mm. How, how old were you when, when you first started feeling very emotionally drawn towards girls or women? About six, I suppose. First one, I think, was a lady help we had during the war who lived in, and I remember she taught me to do the polka, I remember that. Then I fell in love with the... And, uh, did, I mean, did you know how to understand your feelings to no, yourself? No, not at all, all. No. not at all. I just mm. thought it was unique, you know. I didn't know anyone else or could talk about it to anyone. No, I just had to suffer it. Not until I got to know Sybil. And mm. um, when did you meet Sybil? During the war, I, ha I was called up for registration and I became an ambulance driver. And one of the things I had to do after the D-Day landings was to go to Warwick Station and help take a whole trainload of young men with shattered spines to Warwick Hospital. A whole trainload of these young men with shattered spines. And I thought, there must be a better way than this. And if ever I get out of this war, I shall try and join something that, uh, you know, works for a different way of ordering things. And Sybil came to speak at Coventry. She stood up, I can see her now, standing up on a orange box in the middle of Broadgate and delivering a very powerful speech. And I thought, this is what I want to belong to. And there got to know Sybil more. And I fell for a hook, line and sinker and, and uh, I sent a bunch of flowers and she wrote back and said, I think you love me. I was staggered by that, really, because I had never imagined that anything like that would happen. I mean, I thought of her as, you know, a goddess almost. And uh, what now? Are you still switched on? <laughs> Yes, do you want to tell me how things developed with you and uh, well, your she, she, Yes, well, she um, said, well, come into bed with me, you see, and that was the first experience I'd had of any sort of lesbian experience at all. Is there any um, other things that you wanted to talk about? I don't think so, no. All right, shall we have a cup of tea? Mm -hmm. <laughs> You heard the voices of John Alcock, recorded in 1985, and Mary Wilkins, interviewed in 1990, from the Hall Carpenter Oral History Archive, a collection of 113 oral history interviews about lesbian and gay experience in Britain. These two interviews were originally recorded on cassette tape and have been digitized as part of our Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project, thanks to the National Lottery Heritage Fund. As a queer person, getting to hear Mary Wilkins speak feels special because the stories we hear from this time period so often tend to be heteronormative ones. And stories like this so often have to be sought out. John Alcock's story feels poignant to me too. When we hear about the history of LGBTQ plus people in the military, the conversation tends to focus on legal limits on service, like don't ask, don't tell, not on finding a sort of community. It was two o'clock in the morning. And I walked down the embankment on the side of the Thames and I stood and lit a cigarette. And I was very aware that I had, in my small way, a tiny way, small way, I had been a part of making a history.
This year, 2019, marks the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising in America, a crucial era-defining moment in the struggle for equality. As the world reflects, it opens up a new debate on how we approach issues and activism today. For our next story, we head to New York City. What happened was a riot. It was resistance. It was being fed up, not taking it anymore. And so that riot and that pushback and that resistance formed what we know today as pride. In the early hours of the 28th of June, 1969, New York City police raided a gay bar in Greenwich Village called the Stonewall Inn. Raids were a regular occurrence in bars like this, but it was on the 28th that the community decided they'd had enough. This was the start of the Stonewall Uprising. The bar patrons and local residents stood up to the violent police force throughout the night, which eventually led to six days of protest and violent clashes with law enforcement outside the bar and throughout the village. Stonewall served as a catalyst for rights movements in the U.S. and around the world. My view on Stonewall today is that it marked an era of resistance led by Black, queer, and trans people. It marked a time when we think about what's going on today, 50 years later, and how Black, queer, and trans people are still policed, how Black, queer, and trans people don't feel safe in many spaces and have, and have to create spaces for ourselves, many of which are not owned by Black, queer, and trans people. So similarly to Stonewall, having to enter spaces and create spaces and hope that the police won't harass us. I think about how that marked an era of resistance. That's Jewel Cadet, a native New Yorker whose work as a community organizer is deeply embedded within the city's Black, queer, and trans communities. For my full-time work, I do anti-violence and violence prevention work for marginalized communities. Outside of that, and also embedded within that, I'm a community organizer, specifically for the freedom and liberation of Black people. You know, I've, I've actually dubbed myself a ratchet revolutionary because I come from Brooklyn, East New York. I come from, quote unquote, the inner city. I grew up, you know, witnessing violence and, and having violence be a part of my everyday life. And so there's there's part of that culture that I bring with me to the work. I don't remove that from my work. When I think about gunshots, you know, people run from that. I'm like, oh, that's just like it to me. It just sounds like background noise, you know, and I think when you grow up in that environment, it does shape how you view violence. And so I always, you know, I use that term ratchet as a term to like connect to my upbringing and who I am at the core. And then revolutionary thinking about my ancestors who are Haitian, who fought in the revolution. So I've dubbed myself, you know, ratchet revolutionary, which I've, which I've, I've like held on to and been like, that's who I am because I'm, I'm many things. I bring both of those things to the work. When talking about Stonewall, it's important to remember who led the fight. People like Marsha P. Johnson, a black trans sex worker who acted as a leader, but most significantly, someone who nurtured others during the uprising. But has life really changed for black, queer, and trans communities 50 years on? The New York Public Library is currently hosting a season of events and exhibitions called Stonewall 50 across the city and asked Jewel Cadet to moderate a panel called Black and Trans Lives Matter, the future of anti-police brutality movements. So the talk was about how, you know, Black, queer, and trans lives matter and 
the history and future of anti-police brutality movements, so, largely because Stonewall was a riot that was specifically against the police. I think oftentimes we think about how far we've come and we're like, wow, look at Pride. It's so big and World Pride is happening in New York City. New York City is where Stonewall was 50 years ago, the riots. And wow, we've come a long way, but we still have a lot more to do. The way that I framed the event, you know, in the black community, what's really beautiful is that we really are about community and not just the word or the buzzword that's used today. We we, we we get the affirmation, we get the mm-hmm and the yeah and the ah, you know, and we get all of that and we pull people in. And so what was really beautiful is one, I wanted to say that the panel started out as a grounding because that's something that within the black community that we do is before we even step into things, we, we give thanks and we ground and we give honor to those who have passed on. So I named black trans women who were murdered this year. Ashanti Carmon, 27. Malaysia Booker, 23. I also curated the space carefully so when we got to the Q&A part, typically the Q&A is what the audience would ask the panelists. So what I did was, is I made an opportunity to really hold the space to only allow black, queer, and trans people to participate in the Q&A. And then I think it's a way to have people witness and listen and be quiet. So as my Q&A, I actually asked them a question. And I asked them where they think we should be focusing our energy on and where they think the future would look like. They were talking about intergenerational spaces between black, queer, and trans people. If you think about older black trans women who have done the work for decades and don't get a chance to share their knowledge, share their expertise, we highlighted black, queer, and trans youth who take their lives because they're not able to live in their truth safely. There were so many things, and it was a lot of vision and a lot of people being like, continue creating spaces so that people don't feel alone and people really get a chance to feel like they're in community, because community really does save the lives of so many of us who have been pushed out of our homes, so many of us who just to walk down the street is, is a, you don't know where you're gonna end up at the end of the day. If you're gonna end up on an alley somewhere, if you're gonna end up on the news being misgendered, like these are real life things that black, queer, and trans people face. So the history of that, even in thinking about media and visibility, you know, we have people like Janet Mock and Laverne Cox. Um, we need more. Jewel's resounding message is about the importance of community and creating spaces for these conversations to thrive. And from exhibitions like Stonewall 50 to Drag Queen Storytime, we can see that actually libraries have an important role to play in facilitating that. If you think about libraries being the place where books are, magazines and computers. I mean, it's a, it's a holder of knowledge, it's a keeper of knowledge. It's also a free space that people can access, which I think is really powerful. Um, and there are a variety of different communities. I mean, where, where this talk happened at the George Bruce Library in Harlem is right in the heart of where a lot of people are experiencing large amounts of trauma, pain. So the fact that someone can go down the block or up the block and down the street or up the street to a library and go and experience opening a book and accessing the exhibition and going to the talk for free is really critical and I think is an accessible space. 
having this exist in a library and having it be archived in this way is a way that we can guarantee that it won't be erased because it's here. Um, so, yeah. As people like Jewel continue the work of activists before her and these spaces for conversation become more open, the question now is how can we help empower more people to find their voice? My message for the future of empowerment would be to do the self-work. Activism talks about self-care a lot and sustainability um, and self-preservation, but oftentimes we don't get a chance to do that. So how do we refuel, recharge, rejuvenate ourselves? And so when I think about empowerment, I think about self-empowerment first, then community empowerment. To have affirmations in a world that tells you that you're nothing, for you to tell yourself that you are everything for a world to tell you that you are darkness and for you to tell yourself that you are light, for a world to tell yourself that you are worthy of pain and, you know, all horrible things and you tell yourself that you are worthy of love and joy. Um, That is a radical act and that is is an act of self-empowerment. And the more that we empower ourselves, the more that we affirm ourselves, the more that we love on ourselves, then that's why we'll be able to empower other people. Jewel Cadet, talking to us from New York City. New York Public Library's Stonewall 50 exhibition runs until the 13th of July. If you're in the area, I suggest you check it out. You can visit their website to find out more. When you think of libraries as community spaces, it's great to see them celebrating, welcoming, and creating opportunities for LGBTQ people to share their stories with families, with future generations, and with each other. And I hope this work continues. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a rating and review. You can also get in touch by emailing podcast at bl.uk or on social media at British Library using the hashtag anythingbutsilent. Remember, the British Library, like many libraries around the world, is free and is open to everyone. We're based at St. Pancras in London and Boston Spot in Yorkshire and at bl.uk, where you can explore our collection from wherever you are. Anything But Silent is a Pixie U production for the British Library. We'll be back in two weeks' time with the next installment of our accompanying mini-series, Joining the Library, where we invite guest voices to talk about the literary moments that have made them and library books they've struggled to take back. Until then, from me, Cleo Laskarin, thanks for listening.